All right, everybody, welcome to episode 36, Disease Model Tools. I am Dr. Christopher Pisano. He is Dr. Yosef Kinnett, and this is the one and only Stem Cell Podcast. What up, yo? How's it going, man? You watching uh, some, some football? You, get, you ready for the Super Bowl coming up? Oh, man, I'm in it. It was a great, it was a great divisional um, playoff weekend. I'm sure you're happy with you got your win, <laughs> yes, Patriot fan. Yes, yes, um, yes. And all those Cowboy fans out there, sorry. <laughs> Karma. Uh, but, uh, I, you know what, dude? I still don't understand some of the rules in football. That call that got overturned, I don't get it, but yeah. uh, whatever. You know? Okay. Yeah, I feel like it, sometimes uh, stem cell science is more difficult than calls made <laughs> on a football field. Uh, but anyway, so we're at 36. We're talking disease model tools. We have uh, Dr. David Piper coming on from Thermo Fisher. He's going to talk about their collaboration, Yost, with the Parkinson's Institute. Are they, you know, doing you know Parkinson's disease models? And you know, coming from Thermo, he talks. You know, he's going to talk a little bit about the tools that they use at each phase of creating a model. And we know these tools well as researchers in the lab, Sendai Virus, E8 Media, and so forth. So. We'll have him come on and, and give that side of it, and it'd be interesting to hear. Yeah, and we should say beforehand, he's over in Carlsbad, California, and we're over here in New York and Connecticut. So uh, at some points, uh, the connection gets a little hazy, but uh, overall, it's it's uh, you can understand what he's saying, so uh, we should be okay. Yeah, yeah, we just... I just want to warn you guys because as it transitions to the interview, which is pre-taped, uh, and you might sound a little bit like uh, all of a sudden Yosef and I got into a little bit of a wind tunnel there, but uh, <laughs> uh, we, we tried our best, but uh, it should be it should be fine. Anyway, we are the uh, Stem Cell Podcast, the official uh, podcast of the International Society for Stem Cell Research, the ISSCR. Uh, everybody should go to issci.org. And register now for the big meeting in Stockholm, man. We are pumped. We are going. Yosef and I were just talking about flights. We're uh, thinking about getting out there a little early, make, taking a little trip to Iceland. We might uh, check out the Northern Lights in Iceland and then skip on over to Stockholm where we'll be, rec- we'll be recording and broadcasting live. Not really live, but we'll be doing live interviews from the floor at ISSCR Central. Um, they got a good lineup of speakers. They always do. Um, and it's really the place to be. Uh, in the summertime for stem cells. So uh, go register now. You should submit your abstracts, be a part of the program, posters, maybe get a little talk in there if you got something hot. Maybe they pick you. Uh, but uh, definitely it's a place to be, and it's always a place to be when Yosef and I will be there. So yeah. you should uh, <laughs> yeah, you well, should join us there. Um, what else do we got? Um, anything else, you so no. I didn't ask how you're doing, man. Everything good with you? Yeah, everything's great. Just doing a bunch of animal testing, man. Just the behavioral analysis is my forte these days. So Yos uh, is one with the animals. He is. He is yes. one with the rodents. I'm the mouse whisperer. Um, Let me ask you this question: When you're, if you see a rodent like a mouse or a rat or something on the street, does it not phase you because you work with them so closely, or is it a different entity when it's in the in the road? No, it, it, most researchers will tell you if you work with rats, uh, mice scare you, and if you work with mice, rats scare you. So if I saw a rat, I'd be like, "Oh my god, get that thing away from me!" But That's a mouse, so I, true. <laughs> I so would true. pick it up and be like, "Hey, buddy." So yeah. it's it's just it's you fall into two camps, I guess. Um, I remember the first time, sorry, we're going to digress. We really should go forward. But I remember the first time I, I was working with mice in grad school and I rotated in a lab that was using rats and they were using these like, dude, these like four, I mean, these things were huge, like <laughs> 350, 400 grams. I mean, they're huge 
rats. And they were like, okay, so you have to reach in and grab it around its shoulders and then give it an injection. I'm like, hell no. Sorry, I'm done. No way. Yeah, yeah. I'm not messing with that half cat, half rat <laughs> thing that's going on. Um, anyway, so um, let's see. Um, do I want to mention anything else at this point? Nah, you know what? Let's just move forward. We want to start with the, uh, as always, with the, um, the science roundup, which is brought to you by Thermo Fisher. Um, and, in fact, what, what David from Thermal will be talking about today, um, you guys can go out there and check it out more online. So, you know, he's going to explain this collaboration with the Parkinson's Institute. And really what it does is it highlights, like I said, all the different stages of disease modeling and the tools you can use. You know, you can look at – and so if you go on to lifetechnologies.com backslash disease models, you can look at these uh, approaches in each case study, the methods, observations. Uh, you can get an idea for the research tools being used there. Uh, it's a really, it's a really uh, interesting and cool way to highlight the tools that you can use for IPS research. So uh, go there, check it out. We'll also get a link up on the uh, on the website. So, Yost, man, give it, a, give it a shot. Start it off. So there was an alcohol study showing that – that's the journal, actually, alcohol <laughs> – showing that uh, binge drinking. Can has an immediate effect on the immune system. So the researchers gave four to five shots of vodka within 20 minutes to the participants. Imagine being a part of this study. Oh, and uh, they took blood samples over a few hours, uh, and they isolated immune cells from those blood samples and exposed them to proteins uh, from harmful bacteria and found Prote- uh, found that the, the the first immune system at first the immune system ramps up, but then it's weakened. It has a weakened anti-inflammatory phase. So, uh, this is one of the first studies to show that, uh, that binge drinking can have an immediate effect on the immune system. Can we uh, sign up for the second half? Or- <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Getting paid to drink, I guess. Uh, so there was a, what's our favorite journal? Penis. Yes, the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences study showing that BPA or bisphenol A, uh, there's an alternative to BPA, which is... BPS? Yes, actually. Uh, you know your BPA and BPS. Uh, so BPS uh, ca- can uh, cause changes in the zebrafish brain development, or zebrafish, as they say overseas. Uh, zebrafish brain development, causing them to become more hyperactive. And this was observed after delivering l- very, very low doses of BPS. So uh, maybe not a great alternative over there. So uh, Yeah, for everyone out there, when you're getting some Something that's BPA free, it tends to be full of BPS. PS. Anyway. Yeah, these, these uh, yeah, these uh, these hormone mimics are not a good idea. No bueno. Yeah. Uh, so okay, moving on. There was another uh, PNAS study showing that double the, PNAS. Yes, <laughs> this is a double PNAS study uh, showing that the proportion of principal investigators with large NIH grants who are 36-year-old or younger, dropped from 18% in 1983 to 3% in 2010. And uh, they also showed that the average age when a scientist gets their first large grant has risen from just under 38 years old in 1982 to more than 45 years old in 2013. So... I know you've addressed this before in the past, but, uh, you know, just hammer that. You can never address this enough, man. Yeah, so now it's in PNAS and it's official. Uh, There was a cell metabolism study uh, in... The, this was the first time that uh, scientists had observed DNA from 
uh, one's being transferred from one cell to another. So they looked, uh, they visualized a mouse mitochondrial DNA being transferred from healthy tissue to tumor cells in the mice, uh, thus promoting cancer growth and spread. So that's in cell hmm. metabolism. Uh, cool. It's kind of, yeah, it's an interesting study over there. Um, there was a nature study, I'm not sure if you saw this, of a new antibiotic, uh, the first one in 30 years. Uh, this antibiotic was extracted from soil bacteria, which is like really hard to culture these bacteria. 99% of bacteria can't be cultured. And uh, so they figured out a way to do this. And uh, the, it can kill a huge range of diseases, uh, disease-causing microbes. And so far, there's no resistance that uh, they could they could find when they expose this antibiotic to the bacteria. So they discovered the compound. It's called T-E-I-X, so T-E-X-O-Bactin, and it's extracted from Alephtheritere, and it causes the breakdown or prevents the synthesis of bacterial cell walls. And in hmm. tests with mice, they showed that Tiexobactin uh, has shown to be very lethal against bacteria, including Staphylococcus aureus, TB-causing mycobacterium, uh, tuberculosis, and Clostridium difficile, which causes you know the inflammation of the yeah. colon. So uh, that's a pretty big deal, man. We haven't had a good new antibiotic in a while. So uh, no, you know, every that. time I say Staphylococcus, I want to say it with an English accent. I don't know why Staphylococcus. Staphylococcus. You know, I think caucus. Yeah, well, uh, there's a new way of fighting it. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there was uh, a cell metabolism study finding that a drug that is FDA approved uh, to uh, can treat overactive bladder. Uh, that's what it was actually approved for, but it also may boost brown fat metabol- um, metabolism, essentially. Mm-hmm. There, um, so brown fat burns energy to generate heat, therefore making a promising candidate f- uh, to combat obesity. And this drug called Mirabegaron, uh, Begron, I guess, targets the beta-3 adrenergic receptor, which stimulates the brown fat. Uh, so possibly a new obesity yeah, drug. repurpose those drugs, man. Yeah, exactly. Especially FDA approved ones. Um, so yeah. it stops you from peeing yourself and makes you get thin. <laughs> yeah, that's a good. That's summary. a home run. Take I like that. I like that summary. Uh, there was a cell paper uh, where I don't know if you saw this. It's called SunTag. It's a new method for GFP tagging uh, antibodies or enhancing transcription. Where you could also use VP sixty four. Um, I'll I'll link to it. It's called SunTag. I don't, I don't have too many details on it, but it's a cool new method. Um, and then another PNAS study showing that the cold virus can reproduce more efficiently at cooler temperatures found inside the nose than at the core yeah, body I temperature. I actually saw that. It's very cool. Yeah, and uh, this is important because the innate immune response is impaired uh, under these conditions. So uh, another PNAS study. Wow, I'm doing the quadruple. Four PNASs, yeah, man. <laughs> the quadruple PNAS. Here we go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sounds like the triple. In- By the way, I'm never getting a paper accepted to PNAS. <laughs> I know. 
I have to. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> uh, describing why HIV vaccines often backfire um, and increase rates of infection. So they used the non-human primate model of HIV transmission, and they showed that vaccination may actually increase the number of immune cells uh, that serve as viral targets. And they showed that if a vaccine induces high levels of activated CD4 positive T cells in mucosal tissues, the protective effect may be hampered. So you could see that uh, over in PNAS. And a couple more real quick. There was a nature medicine study describing a new diet pill called Fexaramine, fexaramine uh, that when tested on obese mice was found to trigger fats uh, loss, prevent weight gain, control blood sugar, reduce control and inflammation. So this thing seems like a wonder drug. It, it targets the body's pharyngeoid X receptor, which is a protein involved in digestion. And the drug only acts in the intestines, which reduces a lot of the side effects. And uh, finally, I'm going to end on this like really intriguing study in cell reports where they looked at the circumpolar bowhead whale, uh, which can live for more than 200 years. So they're trying to figure out what about this whale in its genome allows it to live for so long, considering it's a mammal that's pretty old for a mammal, right? Uh, so uh, they basically compared their genome to humans, and uh, they th- these whales are relatively free of age-related diseases, and uh, it doesn't have an increased risk of cancer deby- despite uh, having more than a 1,000 cells uh than uh, we do, a uh, thousand times the amount of cells that we do. So uh, the researchers uh, sequenced the genome of this giant and they identified key di- differences in uh, the the mammal's uh, DNA. Basically, uh, it was isolated from a, a 51-year-old whale and they compared it to um, uh, two other whales and humans and chimp an elephant, human, rat, and the platypus. I don't know why they threw a duckbill platypus in there, but they found <laughs> genes that are related to cell division, DNA repair, cancer, and uh, aging uh, that seem to help increase uh, their longevity, longevity and cancer resistance. Uh, and in particular, they found a gene called UCP1 uh, that may be of interest, uh, which is involved in um, metabolism. So uh, you can find that over in cell reports. So maybe we could figure out why, uh, how to... That's really, to, that's yeah. an interesting approach, huh? Yeah, right? Just look at a really old mammal and figure out why, you know, obviously turtles live long, but, you know, on the mammal scale, it's it's like us and... I don't know who lives older than us, but these guys live till 200, so they're doing something right. That's very cool, man. Yeah, what do you got on your end? So, um, all right. So let's get into some stem cell stuff. You know, um, actually, before I start, I just want to say, uh, you know, I talked about it last time. Quickly, uh, we're doing the Next Gen Stem Cell Conference again in Saratoga oh, yeah. this year. Uh, so that'll be on March, I'm sorry, May 6th and 7th. Mark your calendars. We're starting to get some of the speakers all uh, all lined up. We got, uh, you know, Dieter Egley confirmed from NICEF. Nice. We got uh, Kristen Brennan, uh, who's down in Mount Sinai. Uh, we got uh, a couple postdocs. Got Samantha Morris from the George Daly Lab. Nice. I got Evangelos Kiskinis, who's from Northwestern. So we're getting a bunch of good, good, good folks coming down 
to give good talks. Um, Mark Tomashima is helping organize some of the cores. We're going to have a good core, uh, um, you know, stem cell core representation. We got, um, you know, we'll have uh, we'll have plenty of drinks, lots of food, good atmosphere, and golf. If you're in for golf, I'm not a golfer, but I love to watch people golf, and you'll be able to do that from the uh, veranda overlooking the 18th hole. Yeah, stay tuned for more uh, details on that. Um, for those we'll, of you uh, don't get know, you that info. Chris is yeah, really, Chris. Chris has made a pact with the devil to always have the most pristine weather during this conference. So yeah, I'm don't jinx sure me, us, but every year so far we've had this perfect weather where the sunset is setting over the 18th hole it's like a mild breeze and 70 degrees so yeah. <laughs> uh it's it's a great it's a great great casual conference uh stay tuned for registration um all right so yos i know you do a little dabbling in investing um so i figured uh i would start with this um and maybe we should get a, a biotech analyst to come on yos if you talk about uh the stem cell sector of biotech oh, that would be maybe, great i maybe, would love that yeah, me too. So maybe uh, I'll reach out to some people and see what we can get. I was reading this article. It says what investors are looking at in the stem cell sector. And it was basically saying that stem cell stocks did poorly in 2014. Uh, and they're saying that many of these companies have catalysts in the first quarter of 2015 that really could bring some attention to the sector. You know, we talked a lot about clinical trials starting to unfold now over the next two, three years. So this is when companies are really going to start to make a move. Um, I'm not going to, they just list bullets for these companies. Uh, we'll post it. You guys can go check it out. They talk about, you know, companies like Brainstorm, Cell Therapeutics, uh, Neural Stem, uh, Athersis, Plory Stem Therapeutics, uh, Veristem, Stemline, and they give a little summary about what's going on there and why they think they might pop a little bit. So we'll post that and uh, get your money right, everybody, and see what you can do. Uh, let's see here. There was, uh, I read this news kind of press release that says, the Cord Blood Registry and CDI, Cellular Dynamics International, announced a collaboration to reprogram newborn stem cells into IPS cells. So basically, they, there's a collaboration to reprogram um, you know, umbilical cord blood and umbilical cord tissue that's collected and cryopreserved under the Cord Blood Registry protocols and turning them into IPS. You know, Yosef, everybody asks me, do you save cord blood? Do you save cord blood? Do you <laughs> save cord blood? And back then, it was always, nah, you don't need to save it because core blood can't help. However, uh, we know core blood can be efficiently made into IPS cells, and we think they can help. So, um, uh, you know, you know, maybe this offers another route. You know, core blood can be used for IPS. However, uh, the argument against that, Yos, I, I'm assuming, is that you could just take a skin biopsy and just make them too. So, yeah. Uh, anyway... They announced this collaboration, and they're going to start to be making a bunch of lines, so that came out. Uh, this was announced in the state of New York. Yosef, I don't know if you heard this. Governor Cuomo announced $36 million to accelerate the development of stem cell-based disease cures. What? This is from the uh, NYSTEM, the New York State Stem Cell Science Program. Uh, you know, uh, the lab Yosef's in um, is funded by NYSTEM. Uh, my lab's funded by NYSTEM. Uh, a lot of people at our institute, the Neural Stem Cell Institute, is uh, funded by NYSTEM. They do a great job of pushing science, uh, stem cell science forward. And they have what's these called these consortium grants. And these are grants, these are big grants that are, 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 are you know, to fund um, preclinical development of a product. So, for example, you've already have proof of principle. This money is going to help you take that and turn, get all the data you need to turn it into a product. Um, so they awarded three, $15.7 million to Wow Cornell. Uh, uh, I believe it's Michelle Satterline for sickle cell anemia. Mm-hmm. 
Actually, I don't know if that's him. Is he at Weil? No, he's at MSK, but okay. So I don't know who's doing uh, a sickle cell at, at Weil, uh, but we should find out the name. I apologize. I don't know the name, but uh, Weil Cornell sickle cell anemia. Um, let's see, 11.9 to Roswell Park Cancer uh, to re-engineer adult stem cells derived from blood to target ovarian cancer. And an 8.8 million to the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai for its continued development of a process to increase the number of stem cells collected in the cord blood collection. So, uh, congratulations to them. There are some other consortiums that went out in 2013, and those went to Sloan Kettering, to Lorenz, Sally Temple, Regenerative Research, and uh, there was another one at SUNY Upstate. So, yeah, that was, keep pushing uh, forward. Steve Goldman over up in. Uh Yep. Yep. Uh, you know what? I I got to give Cuomo credit first. There's the fracking ban, and then this. Uh, it's, uh, I'm I'm very happy with uh, these two, two. Bullish things. on Cuomo. Bullish. Yeah. Yeah. So. I laugh as we talk about politics. I always don't want to go there. Uh, then we we let's see here. This is University of Pittsburgh. Uh, this is some collaboration in India. There, they have a pilot project to restore the eyesight of patients with damaged corneas. Um, so they're using this stem cell procedure. They're collected from tiny biopsies in the limbus. It's an area of the eye between the cornea and the sclera, actually the white part, if you're the lay. Um, and these cells were basically replicated in the lab and incorporated into a gel uh, called a fibrin, I guess a protein found in blood, co- blood clots. It's used in surgical adhesives. And then they spread it on the damaged cornea, and it will regenerate, uh, regenerating like a clear window to the eye within four weeks. So they're doing this uh, in mice, and I think they have a, a new way to help with damaged corneas. So that's cool. Um, this is uh, this was reading this release out of the Harvard Gazette, but it was a, uh, a paper published, I believe, in Stem Cells, the journal. The title was intriguing: "Steering Stem Cell Trafficking into Pancreas Reverses Type One Diabetes." So they basically say they developed like a GPS method to guide guide mesenchymal stem cells to inflammatory sites. So MSCs, mesenchymal stem cells, is a cell type useful in treating kind of you know immune-related diseases. Um, and they've the scientists at Brigham and Women's Hospital have uncovered a way to enhance and prolong the cell's therapeutic therapeutic effects in this preclinical model of type one diabetes. So uh, Robert Sack Sackstein of the Department of Dermatology and Medicine and Riza Abdi. Uh, so type 1 diabetes, the body's immune cells basically kills off the islets, the pancreatic islets, which produces insulin. Mm-hmm. And the MSCs are these adult stem cells with potent immune-suppressing and anti-inflammatory effects. Um, and so what they uh, found is a way that they can manipulate the MSCs to target them to the islets. Uh, and so that uh, these, these um, MSCs then go directly into the islets and then this allowed, when they did this, um, it really helped out. They said the results were durable, normalization of blood sugar levels, and eliminating the need for insulin administration. I'm not really sure how uh, the mechanism, but I'm sure if we read the paper, we would. I haven't really read it in detail. I thought that was a cool idea of, of at least the, just the general idea of being able to home cells to a certain part of the body. Yeah. So that's that's cool. Um, this is in Stem Cell Reports. Um, genetic and functional diversity of propagating cells in glioblastoma. Uh, Sarah Picarillo was the first author, and the lab is Mel Greaves and Colin Watts. They're at the end, the end there. So um, GBMs, glioblastoma, is a very lethal malignancy, um, um, and... It really, I guess they've been showing Yosef to be like very intraclonally 
genetic and phenotypic diverse. In other words, all the cells that make up the, these tumors or these GBMs are very, very diverse, heterogeneous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because of that diversity, they can become therapeutically resistant, right? Because they're all different. And so this um, kind of interpretation uh, assumes that the can- cancer stem cells or tumor propagating cells are themselves genetically and functionally diverse. So they, w- they wanted to test this. They screened primary GBM tumors by using SNP arrays. Uh, you know, to look at copy number alterations, um, and they did, did basically clonal analyses using these neurosphere assays and then secondary transplants and such, and they were able to really look at the kind of clonal and phylogenetic architecture of these GBMs um, using, and then they did whole exome sequencing and stuff. So it was a real proof of principle experiment showing that subclones in each GBM had variable regenerative or stem cell activity um, and, you know, we talked about these genetic alterations and stuff. So it's it very cool. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where you're like, yeah, that makes sense that they'd be diverse. And yeah. they really wanted to show that it was, and they did. So that was very cool, stem cell reports. This is uh, out of the lab of Vanya Broccoli. Um, I should say Broccoli and uh, stem cell reports. The direct conversion of fibroblasts into functional astrocytes by defined transcription factors. So they're called I-astrocytes. Um, and astrocytes are really play crucial roles in neuronal homeostasis. They basically they 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 structurally hold the central nervous system in place, but they also are there to support and make the neurons live and function and everything go. And there's a lot of neurodegenerative diseases that have been linked to an uh, uh, a glial or astrocytic component. And so uh, here they came up with a cocktail to. Uh, put in uh, transcri- transcription factors into fibroblasts and bring them directly to an astrocyte fate. Uh, so that's in stem cell reports. In case you're wondering, you know, it's NFIA, NFIB, and SOX9. Those are the three. Oh, nice. SOX, okay. NFI, I've never heard of those. I don't know. Me neither. Never heard of fibrillary? I don't know. I don't know what that I is. I have no idea. Yeah. Uh, activated STAT-5 confers resistance to intestinal in- injury by increasing intestinal stem cell proliferation and regeneration. This is uh, in stem cell reports. So, lo- I mean, this, this is a lot of, like, ha- kind of hardcore molecular here I won't get into, but uh, um, the intestinal epithelial stem cells, the IESCs, uh, control the homeostatic response to inflammation and regeneration. And here they go on to show what that mechanism is, and they relate it to STAT-5, saying loss of STAT-5 impairs intestinal stem cell proliferation, and activating it increases regeneration. So if you can activate um, cytokine STAT-5, you can help mitigate intestinal inflammation. And I think a lot of us out there at a certain point in our life wants to mitigate intestinal <laughs> inflammation. So Yeah, that was me uh, on the train two days ago. <laughs> yeah, chicken and rice down there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right, really quick. I got a few minutes here. There was a, just a quick. There was a review. Um, uh, it actually, went a review is called an analysis paper in Nature Biotech. A comparison of non-integrated reprogramming methods. A bunch of nice hitters on the lines. The first authors are Thorsten Schlegler and Lawrence Deron. They are core managers, core directors at Harvard and MGH. And, and George Daly is the final author there. Also, Lee Rubin, Lenzon, Alex Miser, Chad Cowan. They're all on here. Wow. Basically, it's a, it's a real comprehensive um, kind of assessment of where we are uh, making iPS cells using a non-integrated format. So uh, I thought that was cool. You can check that out. And then in the same issue, uh, I will end here. Uh, this is uh, out, of the ra- of the, out of the lab of Lorenz Studer. 
Uh, the Julius Steinbeck is the first author. Yosef Gannat is on the line, our one and only Yosef Gannat on the line. Optogenetics enables functional analysis of human embryonic stem cell-derived grafts in a Parkinson's disease model. I'm not going to go into this too much because we're going to have Lorenz come on the show shortly. Um, not this episode, but you know the next episodes to come. Uh, I believe it's the uh, 28th or something like that episode, Yos. Um, uh, sometime in February. Anyway, uh, really quick, they use optogenetics um, in a really cool way that Yosef could probably uh, explain to modulate in real time the electrophysiological and neurochemical properties of dopaminergic neurons derived from human ES. So they're able to like put these dopamine neurons into the brain and then modulate their activity inside the brain using optogenetics to show how actually uh, the graft is actually being beneficial. So it's a very cool high-tech new way of, of, of looking at this. Yeah, it's a first of its kind, and congrats to Julius Steinbeck, and uh, we're all very happy for him in the lab. So uh, it's, it's a cool study, so check that out. Okay, Chris, why don't you bring on our guest? All right, so for everyone who's been listening to the show, uh, they know that uh, they hear us talk about Thermo Fisher when we do the science roundup uh, as a sponsor. Uh, Thermo Fisher really was one of the first to get behind the podcast, really believe in it, and help us uh, make it what it is today. And so along with just you know helping sponsoring the show, they also bring to us um, scientists to come and talk to us about the work they're doing in the stem cell world. Uh, and so we are really happy to have Dr. David Piper uh, to join us tonight on the episode. He's the director of R&D and cell bio and synthetic bio for Thermo Fisher Scientific. Uh, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about his uh, IPS disease modeling efforts. David, how are you doing? Welcome to the show. I'm great, Chris. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Good evening, Yosef. Hi. Welcome aboard. So, um, yeah, I'm really excited. We uh, Apparently, you're doing some Parkinson's work, which is uh, close to our heart over here. I can see Yosef's ears just poked <laughs> up a little bit over there. Yeah, so before, before we get into it, David, why don't you for the, for, like, give a little background about yourself to the audience. Tell us a little bit about, you know, your science, you know, how you got into the world of stem cells and such. Sure. You know, my, my academic training uh, was as a classic classically trained electrophysiologist in the neuroscience program at the University of Utah. And uh, although I was in a lab that studied olfaction, uh, I wound up collaborating with uh, a fellow student in Mahendra Rao's lab that was interested in looking at the development of neurons and glia from progenitors and stem cells. So uh, my, my part of that collaboration was to really try to understand how function developed and how the access of function may have also uh, acted as a feedback loop on development in those cells. So that, uh, that carried me out of my, my Ph.D. into a postdoc uh, where I looked at cardiology. And then as I joined Life Technologies, Legacy Invitrogen, uh, Legacy Life Technologies, now Thermo Fisher Scientific, um, I became part of a group that was developing assays for high-throughput screening, and that really led to sort of an obvious connection between how stem cell models could be used in the pursuit of drug discovery. Yeah, that's sort of like the forgotten leg of IPS technology that people just think about the, you know, cell cell ther- cell replacement therapy, but uh, drug screens, that's that's where I think a lot of uh, pay dirt is going to come from the technology. So maybe you could uh, explain to our listeners how that works. Sure. So, you know, traditionally people have 
done a lot of target-based screening, trying to overexpress a target that they think might be involved in a disease. So, for instance, in Parkinson's, one might overexpress something like LARC2 kinase to understand how compounds interact with it. But that implies, uh, you know, that one really understands quite a bit about the disease to be able to isolate a target like that. And, um, you know, given the fact that the pipelines are challenged right now in pharma, I think there's been a huge shift towards trying to look at more phenotypic models that are more representative of a disease state. And maybe you don't understand every piece of the mechanism that underlies it, but if you have a cell model that can help uh, in a dish truly replicate what we see in animals, at least in some fashion, uh, that can allow people to start understanding how compounds might interrupt that disease process uh, in a somewhat unbiased manner. So I guess uh, for the lay audience, we'd say, okay, uh, you can take a disease, uh, somebody who has a mutation that uh, is known to cause Parkinson's and make a stem cell line using IPS technology and then screen, make those stem cells into dopamine neurons, which die in Parkinson's, and then screen drugs that may help them survive under stress. Yeah, right. Absolutely. I think, you know, that's the real grail, right? I mean, I think that the, the first step even is just taking iPSCs and being able to differentiate neurons or dopaminergic neurons at a high scale and in a robust and repeatable manner such that you could actually screen a million compound library is sort of, you know, step one. And then absolutely being able to take those samples from patients that have a known clinical Parkinsonian phenotype and a known genotype would allow you to, to dig into the genetics that underlie those specific patients. And then as you state, uh, being able to further go in and revert those mutations or introduce those mutations into someone else uh, may give us a genotypic background that really improves the sort of signal to noise that one might see in these assays so that you rule out the pieces you don't understand, right? Other mutations or epigenetic phenomena that could be contributing. Mm. And, and so before we really get into specifics, I just want to, for the for everybody out there listening and, and just for the conversation, this isn't something specific to the nervous system, this this idea, or, or Parkinson's for that matter. Uh, uh, you know, IPS generation and then a differentiation and then a model, if you will, is something that uh, is being, you know, sought by all aspects of health and in all fields. Um, And it's, you know, for me, like you said, you know, we we have to step back. I mean, the generation of IPSCs nowadays, I would would characterize them putting, if I can do air quotes and say it's routine. However, when you're doing it at a scale where you need to incorporate genetic diversity and you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lines, um, and then you have to kind of make those all go to the same cell type, uh, like you said, that needs to be very reliable and robust because, as you can imagine, any sort of difference there, you have to make sure the differences that you're seeing are attributed to the phenotype or the problem and not so much because of the method, if that makes sense. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious, David, if you can speak to that in your experience, you know, uh, uh, this, the, this, this idea of signal to noise, reducing the background so the results you're getting, um, or at least in terms of the differentiation, you know, just on that basic is, is reliable. Um, just talk a little bit about that. Sure. Um, you know, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there. Certainly producing IPSCs, you know, we, we know there are many foundations 
Americans, uh, many large core uh, institutes at academic institutions making hundreds if not thousands of lines at a time. But to your point, these can have biases in their differentiation capability. They can have variations in their growth rate. So even from the most basic level of simply generating them and expanding them in uh, sort of in sync can be problematic. Mm. Um, And, you know, that's something certainly that we at Thermo Fisher Scientific try to address, right? We, We you know, you've probably heard people from our organization compare ourselves to like Levi Strauss, right? We don't really, we don't do the real work. We we provide the picks and the shovels and the blue jeans for people that are doing it. And the, you know, a hope in, for instance, in developing media systems uh, that are reliable would be to, to provide that uh, proliferation that's sort of synced up across different cell lines. And then to your point about differentiation, certainly there are, no shortage of protocols that uh, you know academic laboratories have have put out and published, and clearly they work, um, and clearly they work very well. Uh, it's not as often that you see, however, those same protocols, uh, you know, across a hundred different cell lines or in small volumes. For instance, to screen things you need to often be in a 3d4 well plate so you need to transfer and scale down those differentiation protocols maybe from a dish and a single operator to stacks of 384 or 1536 well plates and you need to be able to have protocols that are robust enough that they can be roboticized right or right. automated right mm. Do you, you know, guys? Uh, sorry, Yost, I, go ahead. Man. Yeah, I was just going to ask. Do you guys use uh, reporter lines? Because we, you know, we talk about this all the time on the show. That even the best differentiation, you're still going to have non-specific cell types, and uh, using reporter lines uh, that turn various colors depending on the pr- and on the you know tag and and the promoter. Do you use those to purify the desired cell type and then throw them into those 384 dishes? Right. So right now, Yosef, we don't. Um, the the few pieces of differentiation media that we have developed over over the past few years have been more uh, directed differentiation paradigms. You know, aimed at using a monolayer, and then sort of you get what you get. And if you want to clean it up afterwards, you'd use an antibody or a bead or something to you know an extracellular marker that might allow you to clean that culture up. We certainly are working with the idea of using. Uh, either minimal promoters to drive reporters or or using CRISPRs or talons, you know, the idea of putting those reporters into the intron of a gene and hooking it up to the expression of an endogenous gene that's turned on during differentiation. Mm. Um, Of course, that leads to another potential issue with these cells, right? As you differentiate them uh, and depending on the cell type of interest, Sorting them is not always straightforward either, right? So right. Uh, no, I especially that, when you're that, dealing with neurons and things like this, I can get wacky. Yosef and I, I'm sure, experience their headaches with that. I mean, I, before again, last piece here before I, I ask a little more detail about the collaboration. There is another another component of disease modeling that's gotten really hot nowadays is genome editing, and I know that. Uh, you know, thermo and, and, you know, there's a real, you know, the tools that are now becoming available. And what I mean by genome editing, uh, everyone out there, our listeners know, Yosef and I are always talking about CRISPR and talent technologies and ways to go in and basically either in, you know, introduce or correct mutations and in, in gene, in, in, the, in disease modeling, right, David? I mean, we're, 
a lot of the, the the way the field has gone is to choose a you know a familial form or some sort of genetic form that's very penetrant uh, that involves a mutation. Uh, and now with genome editing, we can go and correct it, and in hopes to uh, you know see if that deficit can go away or correct it. So I'm assuming you're incorporating that into the approach there. Right, absolutely. So, in fact, in this collaboration that we had with the Parkinson's Institute over the past couple of years, we we started by looking at uh, you know patients that had a clear phenotype and genotype, as well as some age match controls. And as we moved into some assay development associated with those, uh, it was challenging to see clear differences between these age match controls and uh, you know their their disease related counterparts. Um, and that led us to your point towards using talons or CRISPRs to uh, revert those single nucleotide polymorphisms. So, for instance, uh, a G2019S mutation that's known to be involved uh, in, in LARC2 kinase that's known to be involved with uh, Parkinson's. Uh, and again, doing that... Um, you know, help tease out some differences between the the patient sample uh, versus the one that had been edited and reverted back to wild type, and we presume that that is due to the fact that there is less noise sort of in the genetic background, right? So, as Yosef said before, you're you're kind of homing in on that one single change that you made at that one nucleotide level. Yeah. So uh, let's let's talk about that uh, collaboration you have going on. So I didn't know you were working with the Parkinson's Institute. That's is that the one headed by Bill Langston? That's that's right, Joseph. Oh, okay, the nice. Institute headed by Bill Langston. Yep. Yeah, yeah, he's he's an yeah. amazing guy. I met him uh, a while ago, and he's just a phenomenal scientist. And uh, for those yeah. of you who don't know, get his book, The Case of the Frozen Addicts. It's one of the more exciting, compelling uh, reads in science, I think. So, uh, yeah, why don't you talk uh, expand on that? Are you guys making just LARC two or GBA? Uh, what's yeah, the focus? Right. So- so we, we had done a little work with them a couple of years ago, and, and as we talked about some of the things we were collaborating on, we realized there was an opportunity to sort of tell a bigger story, uh, you know, and it, I think it was helpful for both them and us in terms of developing methods that span some of the reagents that we make at Thermal Fisher Scientific. And, you know, many of our customers, I think when they come to us, they may come for one thing. They may come for a bottle of media or they may come for some transfection reagent. Um, and as an organization, these are sort of littered across different businesses we have, just like they might be across academic departments at the university. Um, so in talking with Bill and his team there, we thought, hey, you know, we have all the tools that are necessary to reprogram samples, to sequence them, to uh, expand them in culture, to differentiate them, to qualify what they are, and to develop assays in them and to put them onto roboticized high-throughput platforms. So why not sketch that out? Um, So we we started looking at uh, maybe six to eight patients. Um, One of them did have a LARC2 mutation. Uh, One did have a mutation in GBA. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the other was a sporadic mutation, uh, and it wasn't clear where that was coming from. Um, and uh, 
again, we, we used uh, all the pieces across our workflow to then develop that, that sort of method, right, where we could sequence the incoming material, uh, reprogram it using our Sendai virus particles, uh, grow it up in our essential aid medium, qualify it with our human scorecard, uh, edit it with our talons, um, and we're now in the process of running assay development to try to get these things onto a deck. Okay, we should probably translate some of that. So Sendai is uh, non-integrating, reprogramming, so you're just sort of swooping in and introducing the genes to turn the skin cells to stem cells and not, you know, really uh, manipulating the genome. And then the E8 media is this uh, GMP sort of everything's fully defined media where uh, I guess it's the, 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 the path towards clinical translation, if you will, um, where you have a fully, completely defined media without Xeno. It's Xeno-free, correct? Yeah, right, Joseph. So as you say, the, the Cytotune are a Sendai viral particle, so it's based on the uh, a para, it's like a parainfluenza virus that uh, infects rodents. It's a minus RNA strand virus. So when you introduce the the four classic Yamanaka factors, the Oct4, the Sox, the KLF, and the MYC, uh, they, the virus doesn't replicate. It doesn't integrate into the genome. About 21 days later, you get cells that have been reprogrammed. Uh, highly efficient. You can use this with skin cells, blood cells, uh, we can use it with. It's. I think it's been very useful in our hands. Um, you know, we're not a core facility, so you know we don't do thousands of of uh, stem cells. And what we've found in our experience is that uh, we very rarely fail to reprogram a, a cell type using Sendai. We do also have episomal vectors, and they're very handy, of course. Um, but in our hands, not quite as efficient. And yes, the essential aid medium, as you mentioned, it's a highly defined medium. Um, you know, this was uh, developed in Jamie Thompson's lab at the University of Wisconsin Madison, and we worked with him and his uh, business uh, that he co-founded, Cellular Dynamics, to to make this available through a GMP manufacturing environment at Gibco. And you know. I think one of the main things that's that's useful with this approach with that media that his lab designed was that, you know, it gets you away from feeders, it gets you away from undefined matrices like, you know, gel tracks or matrix gel, which are great for certain applications, but by having a media system that's very well defined and by getting uh, your cells adapted to that same system, you can help normalize your growth rates uh, mm. and your whole process. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting, David, talk a little bit about, I mean, Thermo Fisher, you know, is such a big company when you look at it. And then really when, you know, uh, you know, for people who are not so, you know, into the lab, maybe as a grad student sitting there and they think of life technologies or Thermo, they think of E8 or something, but they don't re- realize that it's a very big company. And then yet here we are just a couple of scientists sitting here talking about the same stuff, right? You're doing what we're doing, we're doing. And so, you know, collaborating with academics, collaborate. So is this is this something, is this a unique approach to Thermo and you, you maybe life they try to take, they, you know, really on the ground, a lot of, a lot of back and forth uh, between, um, you know, industry, academia, and, and, and really trying to move the field forward. As you said, the tools, the tools being produced and made by the company, uh, serve the people 
like us making the products, but you guys are also making them. So we always say, like, right, I mean, the product has to work. And the only way to know if it works is if you use it yourself. So I find it as an interesting approach. Is this is this an approach that life is really trying to take? You know, get on the ground. Let's talk to the people. Let's see. What, let's let's make the cells ourselves. Yeah, I mean, we we try to make a very concerted effort to, you know, talk to the people that are using our tools, to talk to our customers all the time, to get feedback about, uh, you know, how they operate. Um, and sometimes that is more challenging than you might think, because depending on who you're talking to, they may feel there's a veiled attempt at you, you know, trying to sell them something or sure. take an idea or something like that. When when you know, in fact, I think large companies like ours are, are you know, very cognizant of um, you know people's ideas and IP, and and certainly we in license things all the time. Um, so when when you know those opportunities exist, we we absolutely like to work with someone. Um, you know, we don't think that we, obviously we're the only people that come up with ideas. Um, so that's one avenue. But the second is really, as you said, trying to get clear feedback from people on how things work and how we can improve them. And, you know, I mean, if I think back almost to, you know, the beginning of uh, Legacy and Vitrogen, I think one of their first products that really put them on the map was the CDNA librarian, right? <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm sure that, you know, I I'm a little young to have used that product myself at the time, um, but uh, you know I'm sure it wasn't flawless, right? It might have been one of the best. Pro- it might have been one of the best out of the box ways to make a CDNA library back then, mm. um, but it has to go through iterations, just like anything else, right? I mean, you look at your iPod now compared to the first iPod, right? Um, so it's very important to us to get to get direct feedback from our customers and you know we we do what we can internally as well to try to ha- you know get some of our own team to have the same experience they do right um, so for instance i lead a services team that uh, that does work for clients to engineer cells or develop assays that might use specific tools they don't have access to or maybe they don't have the bandwidth or the resources to do the work themselves right now. And and in the pursuit of developing some of that work, I recently had someone on my team, you know, order a bunch of products that we have in our catalog that are associated with this sort of workflow, right? So we have, for instance, a Salomix high-content instrument in my lab, a cell insight, and we have some cardiomyocyte differentiation media. And, you know, my bat, one of my backgrounds is in classically is classic cardiology. And so is my teammates. So I said, Hey, look, order all the stuff you need to differentiate these cardiomyocytes with our media, order our antibodies. You know, we have a bunch of high content kits from, from our probe site, order all that stuff, follow, just follow the protocols and let's just see what we get here. You know, um, and you know, he, he said, Hey, let me, you know, let me call our teammate and Frederick who developed it. And, and my response was, look, you can get all the help you want later, but I want you to just take <laughs> this stuff out of the package and get the experience that our customer does. Right. Right. right yeah. And then we can feed that back to the product development team and let them know how things, how, how things went for you. Um, because if we have problems, obviously our customers are going to have problems. So it is certainly a, a, a cycle of continuous improvement that we try to achieve. Um, and at the end of the day, we do try to keep, uh, 
you know, folks like yourselves uh, first in our minds when we're when we're taking on these activities. So that's good. I'm glad you guys uh, make it a point to keep your ear to the bench, as it were, as opposed to the streets. Keep it to the bench, and uh, you stay close to the. Uh to the groundwork. Um, but That's new, yo, so I haven't heard that one yet from keep you. Keep your, your ear, ear to, to the, the strange. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah. like that. Um, <laughs> so I, I, just going back to the Parkinson's project, it's sort of like this like dirty little secret we have in this drug screening field that with Parkinson's and the dopamine neurons, we there hasn't been a great way of stressing these cells and getting to model... Uh, Parkinson's in a dish uh, just yet. I mean, I, I've talked on the show about the models that we use in vivo with mice and different, and that alone has been a challenge. Um, but with the cells, it, that's a whole nother bag of tricks. So, you know, uh, just talk about how one goes about modeling Parkinson's in a dish. Uh, I know it's been challenging for others, and I was just wondering if you guys had made any headway in that. Yeah, I, you know, I think we're in the same spot everyone is, you know, so as you mentioned, you know, getting the right stress and trying to, you know, mimic the appropriate age-related phenotype is a challenge. Uh, we're sort of in the process of that now. We've, I think, done some of the typical things that people do, you know, including glucose starvation or, you know, adding oxidative stress, mm-hmm. Um you know, we've worked with members of your lab to, to test the ability of using progerin in some of these uh, situations. Um, but, you know, again, it, regardless of whether or not you can get, you know, from here to there with a dopaminergic neuron to look at Parkinson's, I guess, you know, there's a couple pieces. You know, one is I think the generalized approach uh, is important to understand. And whether you take that first approach using Parkinson's as your disease model and neurons, and later on you find a way to look at, you know, atrial fibrillation with cardiomyocytes, a great deal of that workflow on the method development is going to be applicable, right, mm. from an ultrastructural pers- perspective and, and from scale. Um, so I think the exercises are valuable. Uh, and you know, even if uh, the neurons don't give you the exact type of phenotype one might expect to see from a human neuron from an ailing Parkinsonian patient, you know, if they're closer and they can give you any data that is more predictive than, say, a you know, a Chinese hamster ovary cell overexpressing LAR2 kinase, right. then that's still a step in the right direction, right? right. So I... I I think these things won't happen overnight. They're gonna they're gonna take a lot of hard work from a number of different laboratories uh, and stakeholders. And uh, you know, I just look forward to you know maybe seeing in another decade some uh, some impact on you know the healthcare population. Um, so I guess Yos, maybe we should you know last question I think for the audience out there, David. A lot, you know, a lot of people listening to the show uh, are younger scientists, grad students, postdocs, possibly trainees, um, some of which might be finishing up degrees or their, or their fellowships and, and then embarking onto their, their, their next day's, uh, stage of their career. And so you know, for someone like yourself who's academically trained and then now uh, working in, the, uh, in industry, um, I wonder if you could just provide 
you know, us and the listeners with a little insight on that transition, how that went for you, you know, how, how you use your skills that you've learned there in, into the current format at, at Thermo. Uh, if you just wouldn't mind spending a little time talking about that, I know everyone really, you know, always likes to hear about those kind of things. Sure. You know, um, I would say just always, uh, you know, this may be a little cliche, but always, you know, keep an open mind about what your future looks like and be honest with yourself and follow that, the passion that you have. Um, As a scientist myself, when I took this position, I was actually looking at academic positions and this one just kind of snuck through my filter. And because of a series of personal circumstances, I decided to check it out. When I met with the folks in Madison, where I started with the company in Madison, Wisconsin, the team of scientists was just stellar. I mean, just incredibly gifted, very bright, very driven. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to try this out and see see how it goes. And, uh, you know, they were doing work that was not dissimilar from what I was doing from a scientific perspective. Um, so it was very gratifying. Uh, within a couple years of being there, I developed a fluorescent binding assay that helps people look at compounds that interact with the Herg potassium channel, which is a significant safety liability. So I felt like I was able to have impact for the company, but also for, again, people in general, because it was something that ultimately reduced the costs of drug development by reducing the cost of looking at liability associated with those. Um, you know, I've been able to, to take my tenure with the company in a lot of different directions um, and work in many different scientific areas, which can be, I think, in some cases, unusual. Um, but I think it really comes down to two things. You know, I recently rebuilt a team out here in Carlsbad, California, and I was telling a couple people that, in my mind, the two most important things of a scientist are the quality to observe and to communicate. And I think whether you're in academia or industry, you know, if you are a careful observer and you're able to communicate what you see and interpret it effectively, you know, you can take that a long way and and build a very enjoyable career. Um, yeah, you know what? I, that's really well said. And and you know, I I, I feel nowadays, David, in the in the in the world of waning. Uh, principal investigator positions and grant funding that's just depleting i feel that uh, and sometimes we're guilty of it on the show having a negative thing about scientists and trainees have nowhere to go but that is you know there's a lot of other options for a scientist and like you said if you're a good scientist you love it and you're able to do the things you just said uh there are many many options out there for everybody to pursue a really really nice uh career in science and help the greater community and humanity so um Thank you for your time. For everybody out there, uh, if you're looking to find more details about this uh, this story and the collaboration of uh, Thermo and Life with Parkinson's Institute, you can go to lifetechnologies.com backslash disease models. We'll get something up on the Stem Cell Podcast uh, website. Uh, David, really appreciate the time, and thank you so much for joining us on the Stem Cell Podcast. Well, Chris, thank you, and Yosef, thank you. It's a real pleasure, and uh, you know, I think the community at large really appreciates the effort you guys uh, put into putting these podcasts together to disseminate information across the community. So, thanks to you, and uh, look forward to chatting with you again. All right, good luck with all the research. Take care. Okay, so there it is, our first Thermo Fisher interview. Uh, yeah, that was pretty cool, man. And see, very related to directly what Yosef's uh, doing now, what I was doing a little bit before, and really showing us, I guess, nicely how 
the tools that a company creates can be used at each phase, right, uh, of this IPS modeling. I know I, I use a lot of those tools. Sendai is big, E8 Media. You know, Yost, when I think of Thermo, I think of life. I think of lip effect to mean 2000. I mean, that's, I that's the jump off. That stuff's been around forever. I can imagine how much money they, they've brought in on lip effect to mean. I mean, yeah, that's like. You know, they're up to 3000 now, right? It really? I didn't have any thousands when I started. Yeah, the life effect mean three thousand. We've man, we're, we're, yeah, it's a new generation, bro. So that so that was <laughs> that was a cool that was a different interview. We'll do some more down the line. Um, I just want to say at this point, uh, we got a bunch of good guests coming up. Uh, right, you know, since we just closed the interview off, uh, a bunch of good guests this year. Continue the great interviews we had a couple already in the new year. We got Lorenz Studer booked. Um, he's coming on. Uh, we're, 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 we just booked uh, Dr. Christine Mummery out in the Netherlands. She has her lab. She's looking at cardiac, and she's also the the you know the the main editor, the editor in chief. I don't know how you say it of Stem Cell Reports. Uh, we're in the process of booking Rusty Gage, Dr. Fred Gage. So we we, we got a, a bunch of things. We, uh, Dr. Paul Tazar, Tazar, Paulie Paul. I know you're he's listening. Coming you're back. Coming back. He's, coming, he's back. coming back. He's got Paul's got something big brewing. So. Uh, we're timing it so we catch him when it brews. Okay. Uh, nice. So we're going to get him on. So a bunch of good interviews to come. But I think we should rant it up. What do you say? Yeah. So uh, this was actually introduced to me. Somebody in my lab suggested this. This is a shout out to Bastian in the lab. Uh, he said to me, he was, he said, why is Bastian Zimmer, uh, by the way, um, he said to me, you know what? Let's, why don't you guys rant about parafilm? I was oh like, "Oh my god, parafilm! That is Bastion. I hate I hate parafilm. <laughs> I hate it as much as I love parafilm, and it's what it's intended for. I hate it. All right, so we should we should we should strike that, reverse it, and go back and tell everyone what parafilm. You want to describe parafilm for everyone uh, out there that might not know parafilm? It's sort of like saran wrap for scientists, right? <laughs> I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it's kind of. It's like a stretchy. It's like a thin, rubbery thing, and it's in it. You you pull. You know it. it, it one, it's connect on one side. There's a piece of paper stuck to it, right? So you roll it out, and you cut it, and then it you comes peel the in paper like off. a toilet paper kind of roll, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like a little toilet, and you, you cut it, and now you have this. You, you peel the paper off, and now you have this film thing. It's not sticky, right? So it doesn't stick to you, but it stretches. So you can wrap it like around, let's say, like a plate or something, or something you want to seal. And as you pull it, it stretches, and as you wrap it tight, it can seal. Okay. The problem with with this, I want to man, I almost cursed here. The problem <laughs> with this thing is that it rips a lot for me, man. So I'll, I'll get it to the perfect. I'll pull it, pull it. I get it perfect, and it snap, and it just rips, and it gets all twisted. And there's really no good method. I've asked people. People think they have their own parafilm method. And I've yet to conquer mine, and it's incredibly frustrating. I've got me. a, I've got my own method where I pre-stretch it before I stretch it. Does that make sense? <laughs> like, so I, you, so you, so you pre-stretch it, put yeah. it on. Yeah. Well, so say I have a a six well uh, dish that I need to. So a, a lot of the reasons why we're doing this is to create a seal so that air doesn't come in and all the media evaporates. Or if you have an Eppendorf tube, you need to wrap it up so again air doesn't come in. It's sort of like a cheap way of creating a hermetically sealed um, item. And then, so it, it is like saran wrap in that case. So I pre-stretch it so that when I'm ready to wrap it around that dish, 
it doesn't break on me at the you know eleventh hour when you get to that like eighty percent point where you almost got it completely wrapped and then it just breaks off and you're like oh I got to do this all over again. I mean, I wonder if I YouTube parafilm. Do you think there are videos of people freaking out using parafilm? I mean, if not, we should make like a stem cell podcast compilation <laughs> of parafilm fails because there are like yeah I just I just did it right now. How to use parafilm, how to parafilm, proper parafilm. People have proper parafilm technique <laughs> on YouTube. This is not like a unique thing. This is why it's frustrating. I've always said that part of your PhD uh, thesis and to know when you're ready to graduate is when you su- can successfully parafilm a plate. Because <laughs> it is no, it is no like easy, easy thing. And it can be incredibly frustrating. So everyone out there who has a parafilm story, why don't you... Stemcellpodcast.com, excuse me, gmail.com. Email us and let us know your parafilming fails. I'm sure there are a plenty. Yeah, don't hold out on us because we know you're out there. Yeah, we know you're out there, man. So. All right, Yost Dog, 36 <laughs> in the books. All right, take, I'll take us right. out. Take care. See you. Later.